Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wondery Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook. Salome's Dance of the Seven Veils is inspiration for the name of a collective of strippers and adult industry performers who've come together to build community and improve working conditions of Salome's circle. In the New Testament of the Christian Bible, Salome danced before Herod with the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter, and she's become a symbol of dangerous female seductiveness in art and literature over the centuries. In this week's Women on the Line, we hear from Lee Hopkinson, who reads extracts from her memoirs of her time stripping in New Zealand and Melbourne. But first we hear from Sophie, who has danced in strip clubs in both the US and Australia over the last 15 years. And she tells us about the stripping scene, working conditions, and the thorny issues of feminism, stripping, hetero-male desire, and objectification. My name is Sophie, and I'm one of the co-creators of Salome Circle. And Sophie isn't your real name? No, it's my stage name or alias. I've come out as a sex worker, so to speak, um, in certain situations, but I still try and manage that kind of disclosure of identity as a sex worker in certain situations. I've been in the industry off and on for a about 15 years, possibly a little bit over. Um, and in, in terms of the activism, I, I really haven't done that for too long. In, in Australia, I've been here for probably the last five and a half to six years. Um, and I have done it for the majority of the time that I've been here. But in the States, I've done it since around 2002, t- 2003. What does the work of a stripper involve? The work itself, it's... I mean, it's physically ta- tasking. It's it's also very emotionally exhaustive. Cause it, it's I mean, we joke that it's like naked counseling. I mean, you it's not always that way, but I mean, often you're talking to people about their lives and you know the situations they might might be in. Sometimes it's just um, you know talking talking them through a recent breakup, or it's the first time in a strip club, or someone's lonely, or I mean, it's it's very it's very dynamic work. Um, so, I mean, the, the work itself is really, it's, it's hard to describe. I mean, it's um, usually looking at maybe an 8 to 12 or 14 hour shift, um, I'd say. Yeah, you arrive at work, you go up um, to your change room, you pay your house fee to work. Um, you get dressed or, you, well, you get undressed <laughs> and then redressed in lingerie. And you go, you go downstairs. I mean, for me, I go down. I get a drink before I start, 
just kind of get into the vibe of the club and then you look and see how many stages you have to do that night yeah so you've got a certain required amount that depends on how many other girls are rostered on that night so you're looking at depending on the place it could be anywhere from maybe two to five stages approximately you do your stage you look at who's around scan the crowd and just start talking to people and see if they want to dance um your hope is that they do and they're not just there to watch so yes i mean that's more or less what it looks like i mean you're walking around in heels um so in pleasers usually which is a stripper type of heel super high but super comfortable a lot of women come in and and erroneously think that they're actually very difficult to walk in and very uncomfortable compared to normal stilettos pleasers are like fluffy loafers i mean they're they're fantastic compared to normal heel so this first section i'm going to read is uh from Close to the beginning of my book, Two Decades Naked, um, I started stripping in Christchurch when I was 18 and uh, I worked in quite a small boutique club. The club also offered out calls, so this was the first time when I took my character Holly into the outside world. One Friday, Craig asked if I would like to do an out call. I asked what it involved. He chuckled, what do you mean, what does it involve? Just get your kid off. Around 11pm, the driver collected me from the club in his battered Toyota Corolla. Ned was a hefty Caucasian in his late 50s. A man of few words, he had a piercing gaze, perhaps because he was a laser cutter by day. As he drove towards the poorer eastern suburbs, Ned spent as much time eyeing my breasts as he did the road. I sat stone-faced in the passenger seat, sensing I'd made a very bad call. Perhaps misinterpreting my fear as stage fright, Ned fished a small pipe out from under his seat. He held it up. I shook my head. Can you hold the wheel? So I stared while he packed and lit the pipe. The car filled with the pungent aroma of hash. We dawdled along the Avon River into Linwood, Ned making a few wrong turns through the sleepy streets. Then he pulled into a cul-de-sac lined with vehicles. Lights blazed and music thundered from one particular house. Ned took the ghetto blaster out of the boot regardless. I followed him to the open front door. In the hallway were two gangly boys in their late teens. Strippers here, one yelled, turning and crashing into the doorframe. Someone twice as old but just as pissed greeted us with the cash. He said it was Scotty's 21st. In the lounge we found Scotty handcuffed to a kitchen chair wearing a pair of Lucky Clover boxer shorts. He looked at me like he'd just died and gone to a heaven he would never remember when he woke up in his own vomit. Surrounding him was a pack of mates in his likeness and his nine-year-old brother who was quickly shooed from the room. ACDC was turned off. Ned stumbled out of his stupor long enough to press play on the ghetto blaster. Call me sounded out. I began to gyrate. Scotty began to drool. I bounced around in his lap, not entirely sure what to do. You're pretty, he said. Someone held out a cup of ice. Hey, put this down his pants. I plonked the ice down Scotty's boxes and bounced some more, feeling a sense of self-importance at all the attention. The boys made caveman noises and Ned stared off into space. Buzzing with adrenaline, free from club rules, I took off my G and grabbed my ankles. It was my first conscious flash. 
Scotty missed it. He was too busy defrosting his balls. Then it was all over and I was shown into a bedroom with a single racing car bed and a poster of the All Blacks. I dressed, wondering where the nine-year-old was hiding. As we headed back to the club, I realised I'd crossed a boundary. I had taken Holly into the outside world. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> You get paid per dance. So whatever you make um, above the house fee that you paid is yours to keep. That's your profit. So you have to initially make back the amount that you put down, which depends on, which varies club to club. Mm-hmm. And is there rules around uh, touching and sex work and what are the boundaries there? Yeah, so most uh, most of the strip clubs are regulated by the Victorian Commission for Gambling and Liquor Regulation, um, apart from one. So in terms of touching, we all have to abide by uh, sex work legislation, So, which means that we can't provide those sexual services that are um, that are described within the Sex Work Act. So that means um, no masturbation, no penetration. Customers are not allowed to touch your genitalia, so that can be anal region, vaginal region, or the breasts. So we do have touching clubs versus non-touching clubs here. That's down to club policy, so take the breasts out of that. With the clubs, they decide on what they're going to allow. So some clubs have identified as non-touching venues, which means that guided touching is allowed, so you're able to take the customer's hands and place them on your hips. Um, they can basically touch all the areas apart from your um, buttocks, your vagina, and, and that's it. And so those are the only exclusions. Everywhere else they're, they're typically able to touch. Um, in touching venues, in the non-touching, it's only guided touching. So if they do touch, then you could potentially be warned, given a warning, um, and the guy kicked out. You love the industry, obviously, or you love the work. I know that. <laughs> I can hear that. But you also have some concerns about working conditions for strippers and that and some other reasons are why Salome Circle got set up. You know, part of the reason um, was due to just kind of the social isolation that we're, we're very much atomized within the industry. So you might be working together, but outside of that environment, outside of the strip club, you're not you might feel a bit disconnected from fellow workers. So I think that was one of the, the the main motivations for doing it. But also it happened after an experience that I had when I was full rostered and just realizing that I felt very socially isolated. What's full rostered? Full rostered is, is a way in which um, as an independent contractor, you can't be fired. So the way around that is to basically full roster somebody. So it just means that when you go to submit your roster for the following week, um, you get a text message back saying that the roster is full. And that just happens continuously until you realize that the roster will always be full for you. (laughs) So you've got to find somewhere else. So, and I think that that is a very, um, it's, it's a very difficult thing for people to process when it happens to them. It's, it's kind of the nature of the beast um, in this industry. And so having a space in which people can talk and vent and share information about other clubs or other places or um, other areas of the industry that they could work in is, is really useful and valuable. So, I mean, that, those were some of the initial reasons. But I think, you know, 
more so it was it was to try and create a community for those in the industry to share information on the different clubs um resources uh for the stripper friendly or more broadly sex worker friendly resources and referrals i mean that's kind of a very loose a very rough sketch of kind of why we started it up um it was mostly just conversations in a change room that took place and then finally we thought well what the hell like we might as well create a group and see what happens and i think we might have only had eight people or something initially in it and then suddenly it ballooned and now we're around 350. So you mentioned full rostering as um, a problem that people face and I suppose that's a lot about kind of precarious work and the difficulties of working as an independent contractor. One of the uh, one of the issues in terms of working conditions is that we as independent contractors in this industry we don't have a lot of power or agency over over our work entirely, I'd say. I mean, I've got to be cautious when I say this, um, but I think uh, that there's not really, for example, there's not a uniform contract that goes like from club to club to club. And I know that that's not going to be the case, but I think that there are certain types of conditions um, or certain things that dancers want as a guarantee when we're signing the contract. I think one of the issues is, is fines. I think that's probably one of the largest grievances that strippers have in certain strip clubs. So depending on the club, you can get them for just about anything. So you can get them if you don't cancel um, uh, 24 hours before a shift. If you don't provide a medical certificate, you might get fined at other clubs for not wearing the right thing. Uh, You might get fined for leaving early before your shift is finished. I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, there's fines for just about anything, depending on the venue. You know, and safety in clubs is a huge deal and it's a huge issue. I think for a lot of the large clubs in Melbourne, like in the CBD, there's pretty decent security. Management respond very well. But at some of the smaller clubs, I think that security has been lacking. Um, and I don't think that dancers always listen to when they do have an issue where they're worried about their safety. Women on the Line. You're listening to Sophie, a stripper now based in Melbourne who set up Salome's Circle, a burgeoning group working for strippers' rights. You are also hearing readings by Lee Hopkinson from her book, Two Decades Naked. Okay, so this second excerpt uh, is from when I came back to work at the Men's Gallery in Melbourne. Um, I've been stripping, gosh, for about six years at this stage. And uh, I'd just come back from London and uh, had come to Melbourne specifically uh, to create a new life. The day I had planned to resume stripping, I woke up at the backpackers with a face full of big bub. Bed, but I'll try that again. <laughs> the day I had planned to resume stripping, I woke up at the backpackers with a face full of bed bug bites. I felt like a right skank. It was three days before the nasty red welts had subsided enough to be concealed. By then, I was down to $200 and was desperate to get nude. It was a Wednesday. As soon as the men's gallery opened, I called and asked if I could roster back on. The receptionist said I'd been gone too long and would have to undergo a compulsory retraining session. 
She told me to meet Rain, the club's former top showgirl, in the foyer at 5pm. Arriving early, I waited impatiently on the casting couch, dressed in a t-shirt, jeans and thongs. With me were two first-timers from Frankston, a depressed outer suburb of Melbourne and a breeding ground for nubile strippers. They wore low-slung velour tracksuits that exposed matching Playboy bunny tramp stamps. One was chewing gum. She squeezed my thigh. I'm so excited. Hopefully the guys are hot. That would really piss my boyfriend off. I gave her a tight-lipped smile. Two years in England had cultivated the snob in me. Rain finally arrived at 20 past, sporting a sizable baby bump. Ever the showgirl, she had teamed it up with four-inch stilettos, a black jersey dress and leggings. In the face of her glamour, my superiority faded. Grasping for recognition, I flip-flopped along at her elbow as she led us up the back stairs and into the showroom. Wow, you're pregnant, I said disbelievingly. Plastic perfect flesh just wasn't made for procreating. Well, said Rain with a sideways glance, you can't always flash your gash for cash. We filed into the red room, where Rain explained the house rules, which hadn't changed. The new girls asked a lot of questions along the lines of, what do you say if someone wants to pay you for sex? And, has a guy ever vomited on you? To the latter, Rain gave an offhand shrug. Once, industry has it, if you're a builder, sooner or later you're going to fall off the ladder. She looked to me for moral support. I shrugged too, but said nothing. I've always believed that if you hustle a guy who's so drunk he could mistake you for a public toilet, then you deserve what's coming to you. One of the new girls asked Rain to demonstrate a few moves. She obliged to belly giving new measure to the regulation 30 centimetre gap between a performer and a customer's groin. When she lay back and splayed her legs in the men's gallery salute, it was disconcertingly close to birthing. I was relieved when she told us to go and start getting ready. Down in the girls' room, I found Carol presiding over the dance supervisor's desk, puffing on the ever-present fag. "'Welcome back, what's your name again?' she said. "'It was Holly,' I said. "'We already have a Holly. You'll have to pick something else.' I thought fast. "'Juliet?' Juliet it is. I'd named myself after a sultry Canadian dancer I'd worked with in London, unaware of the Shakespearean overtones. The first dancer I saw was Harlow. She was snapping domestic instructions into her mobile, presumably to her husband. While she looked as breathtaking as ever, there was a new coldness in her eyes and a sharpness to her tone. How are you, babe? she asked evenly as she hung up, as if we'd seen each other yesterday. Time had a way of vaporising in Stripperville. Guess what? I got the house. Harlow's dream house in Brighton had come on the market and she bought it at auction. Watching her fasten her garter and head resolutely towards the stairs, I wondered at what cost. While I spied a few more faces, no one else said hello and I said hello to no one. Up on the floor, nothing much appeared to have changed. Thankfully, the club was still busy midweek. I slotted back into the routine with a metaphorical skin hardened by the London hustle and actual toes permanently disfigured by my grown-up stripper shoes. It was a relief to be able to go down to the girls' room, put up my feet and smoke a cigarette without management yelling, get your ass out on the floor, as Sergi had done in London. 
Around 11pm, I was doing exactly that when Carol stomped down the dressing room stairs, dragging one of the Frankston newbies by the elbow. They disappeared into the costume room, the door slamming behind them. I got up and loitered nearby, expressing unusual interest in a bowl of rubber bands. What the fuck were you thinking, I heard Carol say. Look, it's okay, he respected me totally, the girl said. What part of no touching don't you understand, you little twerp? Pack up your shirt, you're fired. I hurried back to my booth. The girl emerged looking livid and began scooping her belongings into a bag. Later, I would learn she'd been kissing a customer. Word was if security hadn't called Carol, the girl would have fucked him then and there. I wondered if her sidekick would stick around. She didn't. The girl's motivations were perplexing, but once I'd made enough money for rent and bond, I began to question my own. Despite the memory of the London nights when I'd yearned to be where the cash flowed, I just couldn't bring myself to work more than three nights a week. Three nights was plenty to live off. Stripping had always been the vehicle to get me someplace else, and this time I wasn't sure where or what that was. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. Is your Do strippers find it hard to look for support outside the industry? Traditionally, we weren't recognised so much as sex workers um, amongst the sex worker organisations. I think that that was a bit of a hindrance um, initially. We've since challenged that and succeeded. However, I think finding support in certain contexts is quite difficult um, because of the stigma attached to stripping, but also because in some spaces, in some sex worker spaces, strippers aren't really seen as sex workers. But you definitely do consider yourself a sex worker Personally, I do. Um, this isn't across the board. Not all strippers agree, and which is fine. Um, but in my opinion, I believe that I am because I'm selling my sexual labor, essentially. So I'm selling a bit of my sexuality, um, a bit of a sexual experience. Okay, so I was asking you a little bit how you identify yourself. Um, a kind of obvious question for a lot of our listeners, it being a feminist current affairs show, is whether you identify yourself as a feminist and how that how you understand stripping in relation to feminism. It's obviously one of the hot topics. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I consider myself to be a feminist. Um, I think if a woman doesn't consider themselves to be feminist, then that's a bit of an issue. But I mean, that being said... I know that there's can um, I know that the that feminism and stripping they're at times a bit in conflict, but I don't know. Like I, you know, I I'm familiar with the debates, but I mean, I do see myself as a feminist, and in my work stripping, that's me making that choice to do that work, and it's a way for me to show my sexuality. Yeah, it. The strip clubs are still, you know, somewhat patriarchal because you, they are typically owned by men. Um, it's appealing to kind of the heteronormative, you know, kind of perception of desires that I'm appealing to in there. But I mean, it's not just pandering to the kind of male ego. I mean, that's not entirely what you're doing. You are, but you're you're also giving them a bit of yourself. So I mean, if somebody says something. Like, let's say you're doing a dance and somebody makes a comment that's, you know, misogynistic. 
well, you stop the dance or you tell them flat out and you won't continue the dance, you know? I mean, so there's, there's ways where you can exercise control and, and I, I suppose exercise kind of your, your feminism, so to speak, within that context that gives you some agency over it. Yeah, it's still very much a male-dominated industry. But I think, too, like the other thing of, the other thing that's interesting is that what you see in strip clubs now as well is that it's not just catering to men. Like, you do get women coming in to strip clubs for enjoyment. Bisexual women, lesbian women, he- heterosexual women. I mean, you get couples that come in together. So I think that our like audience base is diversifying and it is changing the ways that we do things. For example, you're not going to dance the same way with a man, a heterosexual man as you would with a, you know, female who's bisexual or lesbian or pansexual. You do the dance a little bit differently, you know, you're appealing to somebody, you know, different desires. So I think that it is changing. But even if people like it and like stripping and strippers are happy to work, some will often say that it encourages men to objectify women and is said to contribute to sexism and rape culture. Here's the thing. Like, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that at all, that it does contribute. And, and we've heard this argument time and time again. In fact, most of the times when they want to crack down on a certain zone that's considered to be like an adult entertainment zone, it's usually using those comments as justification. You know, that uh, bastion of feminism, the police force. Exactly. You know, within that role, we're not selling our bodies as such. And I think that's what a lot of people turn to is that, you know, oh, well, you're selling your body as a woman, you're selling your naked body. And that's not what we're doing. We're not selling our bodies. We're selling an experience. We're selling a service that may cater to heterosexual men. It may cater to bisexual women. So I don't think that we're entirely objectified as such because it's something that's not tangible that we're actually selling. In terms of it contributing to rape culture, you know, we're so quick to focus on the sex industry as contributing to rape culture. However, rape culture is kind of perpetuated by, this is a tricky one, (laughs) women being less equal in in all aspects of life. Whereas in the stripping industry and within the sex industry more broadly, this is the only area where women actually make more money than men, which there is power in that. There is power in being able to say, well, I'm not going to work today. I'll, I'll work tomorrow. I'm not going to work for this customer because nah, they, they don't sit well with me. And at the end of the day, I'm going to make more than my male counterparts in the industry. I mean, you have the power to decide like whether or not you're going to give a service to somebody if you don't want to. I mean, regardless of you know how many times the person asks you, you don't have to do it. Like, you can walk away. And I, I, I think that's really important to kind of realize. And, and most of the time, management here will take your side and say, well, absolutely, you know, you, you do you. And I suppose what you were saying about that issue of management support, that kind of brings us full circle around to what you started with, that your focus is on workers' conditions and workers' rights. Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Sophie and Lee from Salome's Circle. Find them on Facebook to get involved and support their work. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs programme made for community radio. 
It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love to hear your thoughts or comments about the programme. So please send an email to womenontheline at gmail.com and you can also find us on Facebook or Twitter.